I love that there's only grace left for us, don't you? No matter what the day brings, no matter what the challenge is, no matter what the relationship looks like, there is grace for us. Last week we talked about forgiveness and how forgiveness is the lifeblood, sort of the oil of the engine of our Christianity. And when there's no forgiveness in our life, Christianity just doesn't work out, right? But when forgiveness is there and when forgiveness is in the middle of our life every single day, then we get a taste of the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10 and verse 10. Well, as we talked about a couple of minutes ago, we are wrapping up our A Reconciler's Journey series. We've been talking now, this is the fourth week, about reconciliation and forgiveness and relationships coming back together. And where we got this idea from is the story of Jacob and Esau. And there's a ton of stuff in this story. There is deception. There is revenge. There is Um, sneaking around behind the scenes between family members, trying to get something that doesn't belong to us. And in fact, the whole story begins with brother Esau, the firstborn who was due all these rights as a firstborn son, including the whole estate of his father when his father died and all the power that came with that and the wealth that came with that. He traded that in for a bowl of what? Lentil soup, remember that? He traded that in, and his brother Jacob was prompted by his mom, Rebecca, to make that trade, you know? Um, We're going to trade you in for Esau's firstborn rights. And in fact, she set him up to go back to their dad, Isaac, at some point, to go in and dress up like Esau and to take away his rights as the firstborn. The Bible says that that happened. And then a great rift came between them. Of course, Esau was angry that Jacob had coerced him out of his rights as a firstborn son, which included twice of the share of his father's estate and all the power that came with that and all the wealth that came with it. And in fact, we read in the scripture that um, Jacob and Esau fell out so hard that Jacob felt the compulsion to leave under pain of death. So Esau was going to come after Jacob and take his life. And again, Rebekah, the mom, steps in and prompts Jacob to take a trip far north back to one of the areas, one of the regions that their forefather Abraham had traveled through on the way to the promised land. Now, I don't know if you can uh, imagine the map of the Middle East, but Abraham came from a place called Ur, and he traveled north and came through uh, Mesopotamia and then hooked down again to the south into Canaan, the promised land, uh, which you can also see sometimes marked as the land of Edom. Edom is another name for Esau. And so when Jacob and Esau had this falling out, these two brothers that fell out, Jacob traveled north back up to the top of uh, that, that northmost part of the journey where Abraham had come through uh, to Haran to find a wife. And again, this was prompted by his mom. The mom was really looking out for one son in particular, where the Bible said the other son, Esau, was favored by the dad, Isaac. So there was all kinds of drama in this family. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been a part of family drama before? No, everybody's like, no, not me. Maybe that guy down the road, but no, not me. Imagine what that's like, and then you go to Thanksgiving, right? You sit down at the Thanksgiving Day table, and you got the turkey and all the trimmings and stuff in front of you, but the person across the table has something against you. There's discordance there. There's a break in the relationship, right? And that just doesn't feel good when you've got a fallout, especially with a family member. Today we're talking about this story of of Jacob and Esau and bringing a happy ending to it. 
The Bible says that uh, Jacob took it upon himself out of Haran to travel back south again. Now, if you remember any of your Bible history, what was happening in the life of Jacob is that he was taking on not one but two wives, Rachel and Leah. And then with their handmaidens, Jacob was having all kinds of kids. And in fact, he spent at least 20 years making this big family and gathering this wealth. And so the Bible says he traveled back south toward the promised land again under the promise of God that he would inherit what was promised to his grandfather Abraham and then promised to his father Isaac. And in fact, the Bible says that God met Jacob along the way and told him, you're going to inherit all this. And as Jacob was getting ready to go south, the Bible says that he began to prepare to meet his brother Esau after so many years. Now Esau had threatened to kill Jacob. And so Jacob decided, he got some smarts about him, Jacob decided to take some of the wealth that he had gathered over these 20, 30 or more years that he had been way up north and send it ahead of him to give to his brother Esau. So he decided to send all this cattle, all these, you know, all this stuff, all this wealth in cattle down to meet Esau and send some messengers down here, there to tell Esau, guess what, your long lost brother is returning and by the way, here's all this cattle for you. He sent a little bit ahead of him to, uh, to, to kind of butter him up a little bit and to let him know, you know what, I'm ready to make peace whether you are or not. So Jacob sent all this cattle out and the Bible says that Jacob had a wrestling match with God. I don't know if you remember this story, but a man um, wrestled with Jacob in the middle of the night. Uh, as Jacob was preparing to meet Esau. And in fact, the Bible says that that's where Jacob's name changed. His identity changed. He, from that point on, became Israel. Uh, he who struggles with God is what Israel means. Uh, Jacob had a struggle with God in the middle of the night, the Bible says, before he went to meet Esau. And when he went to meet Esau, he had sent all this cattle and all this good stuff ahead of him. And he found that when he met Esau, Esau was ready to receive him. Esau no longer wanted to do harm to his brother, and he decided to forgive him and to reconcile with him. I thought we could take a look at that story. And in fact, if you ever want to go look at it yourself, just to make sure I'm not making any of the craziness of that up. That's Genesis chapter 28 through about 35. You'll see the whole sordid history of Jacob and how he came to the promised land. And in fact, the story ends well for us because Jacob, Allah, Israel, would be the forefather of who? Of Jesus. And Jesus is ultimately the promise kept from God that God would never turn his back on us. In fact, just like the Bible teaches elsewhere, when we trust in Jesus and we trust in his sacrifice on the cross and him overcoming the grave by rising from the dead, that means we no longer have to be at war with God. That means God no longer holds anything against us. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. But this story behind Jesus, the story of Jacob a la Israel, is pivotal to the way God has delivered his promise and made good on his promise to us. I want to share with you some insights from the story of Jacob and Esau as we get ready to close the series Jacob did this. Jacob sent an offering of goodwill ahead of him. What was it? It was tons and tons of cattle. 
And back then, having a lot of cattle was like a lot of wealth. It was as if you took your favorite car, now not the old beater you keep in the backyard to haul the kids around in from sports to activity to sports activity, right? But let's say it's your special prize car and you took that car and you polished it all up and vacuumed it out and you, you know, wiped it all down and, and made it smell like new car smell inside and you took that car and sent it to the person who had something against you. Imagine if you did that. That's kind of what Jacob is doing. But Jacob is so wealthy that he could go out and get 10 other cars. You see what's happening here? Is he took some of his excess and sent that on. But then Jacob also set some boundaries. You'll see in the scripture that Jacob took half of his people, the people he had, his two wives and their handmaidens and all the kids that they had together. He took them and split them into two parties and put them separately out in the procession of people headed south. The reason is, is he prepared in the event that Esau was not ready to forgive him and reconcile. He prepared that if Esau attacked his family, then at least the other half of his family could escape and be safe. So what Jacob did is he sent ahead a gift to kind of pave the way and butter up the person that he was getting ready to reconcile with. But he also set boundaries and prepared in the, in the worst case scenario, in case the worst case came out. He prepared for that ahead of time. In fact, the Bible says even as Jacob wrestled with God and as his name was changed to Israel, that he, uh, he had this struggle with God where he wanted God to bless him and he struggled with God over the promise that God had made to his forefathers that he would then now inherit as the third in the line of this uh, line of promise from Abraham, Isaac, down to Jacob. He wrestled with God in prayer over this. He acknowledged that who he was, the person he was, changed. He was Jacob, the deceiver. And now his identity changed to Israel, one who wrestles with God, one who struggles with God. And then he asked to see Esau. He traveled south to where Esau was going to be. Well, I thought this would be a good way for us to reflect on what it's like to reconcile and to forgive someone else. Imagine if we did this. Imagine if we sent ahead an offering and asked for coffee or a beer. Because God is the one who, having enmity with us, having a break in relationship with us over sin, sent his son to find us and to rescue us. You see that parallel? But God also set some boundaries and said, I will send my son Jesus and the gospel, the good news of Jesus will be proclaimed all over the world until when? Until the end of times when Jesus returns. There's a boundary set around that grace where the grace is available and is free and is open. But at some point in the future, Christ is going to return and the whole world is going to be judged. Christ will be the one in charge of that judgment. And when that day comes, the Bible says people will be separated like goats and sheep. And those who trust in Christ will spend forever and eternity with him. All forever and ever worshiping him together as one big family. And those who don't will be forever separated from him. There are clear boundaries. There are lines around this reconciliation. So we do the same. 
We set boundaries around a relationship and we offer to make peace and we send gifts or time or offers of coffee or beer or dinner ahead of us. But if a person says no, do we try to force them to reconcile? No. We simply pass them over to God in prayer and walk away. We do what we can to make peace, but we set boundaries around that. God makes himself available to wrestle with us. And so whenever we're facing someone that we need to reconcile with, God calls us in prayer to get together with him and spend time with him on that. Because God can intervene in the heart of even the the crustiest heart around us that's having a hard time with the idea of reconciling with us. God can spend time on that heart and soften it. And God calls us to remember who we are, that we are not the old person that we used to be before Jesus came into our life. We are now what the Bible calls a new creation. So when we go into a reconciliation, when we go in and ask somebody for forgiveness or ask for the opportunity to give forgiveness, we realize that we are a new person. We're a new thing. Just like Jacob, we have a new name and our name is Christian, which means little Christ. Did you know that's what you are if you're a follower of Jesus? Christian means little Christ. That is what you are. So it is not the power of your spirit and your strength inside you that brings you to reconciliation, but it's the power of God at work in you. And that's good news. Because even when you and I don't feel like reconciling with somebody with whom we've had a falling out, the Holy Spirit reminds us of who we now are and gives us the power and the courage and the strength and the ability to go into that meeting to ask for forgiveness or ask for an opportunity to grant it. And God lastly encourages face-to-face time with us. So when God wants us to pray and spend time with him, what he's looking for is a relationship. And the reason why is because God has done what it took to bring us close to him. He's the one who took action. He's the one that bore the responsibility. He's the one that had the power to bring us close to him, to heal our relationship with him. I don't know if you've ever read uh, any of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's work, but you might find this familiar. She wrote this once to her fiance. Uh, She said, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Have you ever said that to your spouse or your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend? Some of you are shaking like, nah, I'm not going to ever say something like that. But imagine if on Valentine's Day, you led with that. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. In other words, the implication is the ways are countless. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. She goes on and says, I love thee for the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. She says, I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. You know, there's a joke at, at a seminary that if you don't know what to preach, always three, preach three points in a poem. I gave you the poem today. So where are the points? Points are coming. Here's the idea, though. 
Elizabeth was in love with this man. And the reason why is because they were kind of like soulmates. He and she both were very much into poetry and very much into writing. Um, Robert Browning, go look him up. Um, famous guy, you know, so she's in love with him. And the reason is, is that she had had an accident when she was a 15 year old, a horse ride, horseback riding accident that left her with a spinal cord injury. She never recovered. And in fact, she lived kind of under the thumb of a domineering father who would never really let her out of the house. She became addicted to painkillers and she became a recluse. She wrote from her bedroom almost until the age of 40 before she began to correspond with her future husband. And in fact, the story goes in her history that, uh, that they kind of whisked each other away to Italy to elope. The father was not too happy about this. And he pretty much cut her out of the will. They became estranged. And as Elizabeth and her husband lived far away, writing this beautiful poetry, coming up with this amazing language, the history says that she wrote letter after letter, almost writing to them every week, love letters to her parents, asking them to reconcile. Because her dad had not wanted her out of the house and would, had not wanted her to marry, mainly because she struggled physically, but she has this brilliant soul that she wanted to share with someone in marriage. So she did it against his will. He cut her off. He wouldn't hear from her, wouldn't... Uh, wouldn't see her, wouldn't take any correspondence. In fact, the story goes that something like 10 years after she had spent week after week writing these types of love letters to her folks, that she got this box in the mail from them. And she was excited because she had no idea what was in the box. Maybe it was a gift. Maybe it was a returned offer to reconcile. But in fact, she opened the box and it was all the letters that she had written to them unopened. She had this nagging idea, this nagging feeling of if. If my parents love me, if God loves me, then I'll be able to see my spouse, see my husband with his eyes. It's kind of like you and me. We're tempted to think about love and relationship and friendship and reconciling and forgiveness from an if point of view. If they forgive me, if we reconcile, it'll all go back to normal. It'll all be good. But what if they don't? What Elizabeth missed when she was writing about the mercies of God and the future way she might see her beloved husband was a truth and an assurance. I want to share this with you from 2 Corinthians 5. This is what the scripture says. Therefore, if, and here's where the if really comes into play. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us something. The thing he gave us is a ministry of reconciliation. It's a work. It's a purpose. It says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them goes on and says, Paul does, that he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The idea that God has sent this message to us in Christ. 
that by merely having faith, by simply trusting in Jesus, that all of our sins are wiped away in the eyes of God, and that this is something that is available not only to those of us who grew up in the church or those of us who are married to a strong Christian, but for every single one of us, even those of us whose faith we consider to be weak. This good news is available for all of us. And in fact, God intends for all of us to be a party to sharing it to others whose faith is perhaps just as weak. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, verse 20 says, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, not because you can, but because he has given you the ability. Be reconciled to him. In other words, receive that reconciliation from God. Know that God loves you and has claimed you and wants you and has purpose and power for you. Be reconciled to God, it says. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to switch out on the cross and take our place so that in him we might have or might become the righteousness of God. Have you ever thought about what the righteousness of God means? The righteousness of God means this. The Bible says that God is love. Not that God has love, but that God is defined as love. If you do a mathematical equation with an equal sign in the middle, then the math of that means that this is equal to this. They are the same, right? If you look at the scripture that says God is love, put the is, take the is out and put an equal sign. And that's what you get. God equals love. That is the righteousness of God, is pure love without any discordance, without any relationship breakdown, without the need to go and grovel to someone and ask for forgiveness, without the need to reconcile. God is perfect and beautiful and majestic. And He has reached out to you and to me to reconcile. And just with the same amount of passion that He gives us the ability to say no thank you to Him, he also gives us an open invitation into his kingdom through Jesus. And this invitation is available to who? Everyone in your life. Everyone in your life has it available. What if God intends for everyone in your life to know about him and his forgiveness and his character and the fact that he is love? What if God intends to share that with everybody in your life through you? What if he does? In fact, there's no if involved with that, my friends. Look, it's a when. It's an is based on what we just read. God has made the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry, the work of reconciliation, the center of your life as a follower of Jesus. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget that, isn't it? Every single day we're tempted to forget. But every single day God reminds us in his word, this is the life I have planned for you. Now what does that mean? That means that every part of your life is a function of the reconciliation God has for us in Jesus. That means even on the worst of your days, when you're having a bad day at work or a bad day at home, there's good news on the other side of your day. And the good news is this. God loves you. He wants you. He has claimed you and put his seal of identity on you. 
He has a future for you that he will never take away, even when on the worst of your days you fail to perform spiritually. He builds you up. He makes you successful spiritually. He gives you the people to love and invite and forgive and to reconcile with. You're surrounded by them. They're all around you already. You don't have to go find them. You don't have to go knock on doors in your neighborhood, though that would be kind of cool if you did. They're already there, those people. And with a demonstration of what God's reconciliation looks like in you, they may have more of a chance, more of an opportunity to experience God's love than ever darkening the doors of the school building to come to church. Now, having said that, remember the package of love letters. Remember what Elizabeth received. And when she opened it, she found that the communication had never landed home on the other end. It had just been rejected. There may be times when people will not receive from you what you have to give. And if they don't, that's okay. Because in your heart, you know that God has received you, he's accepted you, he's claimed you, and he's loved you. And he gives every single beating heart the opportunity to say no to him. That's how much love he has for the whole world. But in the same breath, he has just as much passion where if you will allow yourself to be a conduit for this good news, then some will be saved because of Jesus in you. And they'll open the letters, they'll open the box, and they'll open the word. And they'll see that what you're sharing with them in your life is true. This is the nature of Jesus. Jesus is open and welcoming. Jesus' arms are open and welcoming. And he does that work in you and through you. So as we get ready to close this series and we close it to the glory of God, remember the tools that you've learned. And if you weren't here in previous weeks and you want to hear some of the other things that we shared in previous weeks, you can do that through our website, through our podcasts, through our videos. But be encouraged as you go back out in the world as a follower of Jesus, God intends for you to live a life that's full of the ministry of reconciliation. And it's the little forgivenesses the little reconcilings of every day that God works his power in you and shares the good news to others through you. Sometimes you'll use language. Let that language come from the word, the love letters of Jesus in the Bible. But in a lot of cases, people just want to know that they're loved and cared for by God. You guys know that we have a standing goal here at Trinity South Naperville. By the end of May, we pray and we ask God, God, will you make this worship gathering, plus who is down on Kid Street, everyone down on Kid Street, 100 people strong. And you know that as God does that, as we go on a trajectory of growing this gathering, that we'll be able to start looking realistically at another worship space a space that's really close to our early childhood center just down the street. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had the opportunity to bring someone you love and know to hear what you just heard, why would you not do that? 
The one reason that most people say is I'm afraid to ask because I'm afraid I'm going to get rejected. But I shared with you some encouragement this morning. You can pray and ask God to intervene. You can send a peace offering ahead of the invitation, like an offer to coffee or a beer or a meal. You can prepare in the event that the person says no and then ask anyway. And then when the person says yes, you can prayerfully meet with them and extend to them the invitation that you yourself have received from God. God loves you and he wants you. Will you come with me to hear more about that? And if they ask why, are you inviting me to church? You can say simply this, because God has chosen you just like he's chosen me. And I want us together to experience and to grow in that truth. And when that happens, when that happens, you and I will fully experience what it's like to be friends in Christ. Our relationship will take a whole new level. You and I will become brothers, sisters, family. You think, it, you know, you think it's a southern thing to walk around and call each other brother. No, Martin Luther did that. If you hear me call you brother, there's a reason why. I grew up in the South, and we tend to say that, especially bikers amongst us. However, there's a deeper reason. You and I are in the same family, and we have the opportunity to adopt. Let us go and adopt everyone we can and bring them into the reconciliation that is available to them with God. Find them. They're in front of you. Bring them. Whatever it takes to lay that coursework for that invitation, do it and bring them with you. Will you do that with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be involved in your work. Thank you so much for the opportunity to look at what you do and realize and understand that you have chosen us for this work and that all it takes is to be on the lookout for those around us who need you, those who are already in our life, and send them a peace offering in your name, something that says you love them and so do I, and then with it an invitation to meet and to share what we have with you. Sometimes, God, you call us to reconcile with people with whom we have conflict. Sometimes we know that those conflicts will not be reconciled and they'll not be resolved. And at the same time, we know you've given us peace in spite of that. So we try anyway, but then we walk away if the person says no and respect their right to say that. It's the same with the good news of Jesus. But for those hearts who are open to human reconciliation and those hearts who are open to reconciliation with you, God, we ask that you would use us for both. Use us as instruments of your peace. Use us to reconcile and to be reconciled with others. And let the ministry of reconciliation, the work, the practice of reconciliation flow through us as natural as it could be from you. God, we pray all this and ask this in the name of Jesus, who is our champion, the one who champions reconciliation by the way he walks, acts, speaks, and lives. Jesus, come and live in me. 
In your name we pray and together we say, amen and amen.